Bibles this evening, the New Testament book of Acts. I was about to say the New Testament letter of Acts, and then I, I, I corrected myself. But actually, Acts is a letter. In fact, it is the second part of a letter that was written to one um, named Theophilus. And there is scholarly debate as to whether Theophilus is uh, his actual name or if that is a descriptor of him. But it seems uh, quite probable to me that it might as well be both. We'll call him Theophilus, as Luke called him. And uh, he was a Theophilus. Theophilus is from the Greek theos phileo, um, lover of God. And so this is someone who is interested in God, someone who is more than interested in God, someone who loves God and is seeking God. And Theophilus is um, um, uh, particularly uh, interested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thus Luke, who was a physician, um, has determined to provide a very detailed, very well-researched account of the life of Jesus. The first part of his letter, or the first letter that he wrote, is called the Gospel according to Luke. And the Gospel according to Luke um, uh, is all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Uh, the second part of his correspondence, this second letter, Acts of Apostles, is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Look at chapter 1, and this isn't where we're going to settle tonight, but um, chapter 1, verse, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, Luke does a recap. He rewinds back to his gospel account and, um, um, and, and picks up very much where he left off. Uh, Jesus has not yet ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, but we see that in verses 6 through 11, uh, at which point He promises them that they will be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So all across the world, the Gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed. Acts, if Luke is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach by the Holy Spirit through the life of an obedient, serving local church. Of course, things really get kicked into overdrive in chapter 2 when we have a group of 120 people gathered in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It was um, a, a, a harvest festival, a thanksgiving festival. This was when they give thanks, and this is when historically they would have offered grain offerings to, um, to the Lord God. 
There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that is set around Pentecost time. Several years ago, I preached through that. Um, uh, I think it is completely available online on our YouTube channel. That is the prophet Joel. And Joel um, uh, had this, this partic- particular problem of a, a pestilence that had broken out and had destroyed all of their crops. Locusts, to be precise. Swarms and swarms of locusts that have devoured their crops to the point that they, that they have approached the day of Pentecost and they have no grain to offer God because the grain has been consumed. But this is the thanksgiving for the grain. It is therefore significant that Peter takes as his text on the day of Pentecost when people are wondering, what is this that God is doing through these people? Peter takes as his text the words of the prophet Joel. And we read that in um, uh, Acts chapter 2 and um, uh, verses 17 through to 21. And as he talks about particularly that, that at the conclusion uh, of his text from Joel, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He then begins to talk and expound on how they can be saved and why they need to be saved. They have murdered Messiah. But this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They are sinners... But God is sovereign. And God has sovereignly used their sin, indeed their murder of Messiah, to bring about a once and for all sacrifice so that whoever believes in Him can be saved. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so people begin to, to, to flood forward um, to, 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 to confess their sins and to publicly proclaim Jesus Christ is our Lord in the waters of baptism. What started as just a group of 12 and multiplied at some point to 120 to could have been 500 or more even, has become a congregation of thousands. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 42, verses that we've read many times in the life of our church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray and commit um, this to to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that in Your goodness, in Your mercy and grace, You would help us um, as we continue to to seek to do the the most important, indeed critical, infrastructural heart work um, in our church. We pray, Lord, that You would would bless us and that You would help us. Particularly, Lord, we pray that You would equip us for this new phase of ministry which we are in faith trialing. 
And we pray, Lord, that um, you would lead us and guide us through it. Even if it's just for a, a, a season, we pray that it would nonetheless be beneficial if it is to become part of the, the core life of our church. We pray that that too would be evident and clear. We ask, Lord, for your, your grace, for your goodness. We pray for the peace, unity, and purity of the church. We pray that we would um, love you, the Lord our God, and that um, uh, in all that we, we pursue, uh, that we would commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let's go back to last year, last, last summer. Um, we had a, a series about why we gather. Do you remember that? And then we had a, a shorter series of three, three messages on why we go. And I used the illustration building on what the Apostle Paul has done, albeit lacking the same degree of Holy Spirit inspiration. Um, the church is the body of Christ, yes? And we are all members of it. What is the heartbeat of the church? What, what is the, and this is where the analogy will break down, Christ is the heartbeat of the church, yes. Yeah, we're the body of Christ, but remember Paul said Christ is the head, so we're, we're, we're going to work with Christ is the head. We're the body. What is the rhythm of the church? What is the rhythm of the life of the church? It is gathering and going. Gathering and going. We see that in this particular passage. I hope that you can remember that. If someone asks you, what, 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 what is the rhythm of your church life? Two things. Just think about a heart pumping. It contracts inwardly, then expands outwardly, inwardly, outwardly. Gathering, going. What happens when the heart, your heart, just contracts inwardly and just stops? There's, there's no outward movement. Well, I am not particularly skilled at all of the biological implications of that, but it does result in your death. So it is with a church that only ever gathers. Indeed, a church that is all about gathering. Perhaps even we might dare say a church that their mission strategy is simply and solely about gathering. Therefore, pursuing, one might say, an attractional model of some sort, come and see, which is a biblical approach, if it's rightly implemented. But gathering, and only gathering, results in the eventual death of a church. Do we see why? Because if you're only gathering, then you're, you're soaking in the Word of God. You're consuming Scripture. You're thinking uh, about um, uh, you know, Jesus Christ. You're singing songs. You're praying. You're all, all of that. All of, very nice. Very good stuff. But Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 to His disciples, You will be My witnesses. In, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, so imagine if the church at Jerusalem had just stayed put, and they did for a while just stay put, but even as they stayed put in Jerusalem, there was still this rhythm of 
gathering and going. We'll see that more deeply in the text in a moment. But I hope you're still tracking with me. Um, you, you, you gather, and you don't get, if, you, if you don't go, then you die. What happens to you if your heart just continues going out? And it never comes in. It's the same thing. It's just working a different way. And uh, I don't know, that does sound, for some reason, that sounds more painful. I'm not sure if it is, but just, it sounds potentially explosive. It's expanding. And you do have people collapsing with enlarged hearts and things like that. And just, if the heart is just, just pumping, pumping and out, but never coming in, then you will die. So it is with the church that is only going, going, going out and never, never gathering. One might even say at a micro level, this is true, where, where we, um, we, we gather, yes, we know we gather on the Lord's Day, but then, and, and, and then we have opportunities for going, but throughout the week, there are rhythms of gathering and going. Gathering and going. And that is the rhythm of church life. What we see in this passage is a congregation that has rapidly multiplied. This morning, it was particularly evident how, um, how much we have grown in numbers as a congregation uh, when everyone was standing, particularly, and I was down here um, at the end of the service. It just and there were people standing, there was literally standing room only. There's people who didn't really have much of a choice that were back there standing. We're going to have to reconfigure some things. But though we haven't multiplied at quite the degree the church at Jerusalem did, we have multiplied. And we need, therefore, to understand how we can not only grow in number, because we've done that, but how we can grow infrastructurally to sustain that growth. Does that make sense? So how can, how can we, how can we not only grow in number, but grow in maturity, grow in expression, grow in discipleship, grow in the, uh, the rhythms of church life so that no one gets left behind, no one slips through the cracks, no one gets neglected, someone is covered if we're all doing what we ought to be doing as members of the local church. I hope all of that's clear so far. What we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 is, um, uh, frankly, a biblical basis, I believe, for what we're about to embark on experimenting with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, um, the small groups, um, mixed small groups in particularly local areas. What does that look like? Well, uh, in the text before us, we have the church at Jerusalem going through the rhythms of its weekly gathering and going life. And as it gathers and as it goes, we see on, uh, in verse 46, they attended the temple together. Yeah? And breaking bread in their homes. There's this sense in which um, they are gathering together in the temple and they are going from house to house. 
That's the same model that is basically followed throughout the book of Acts at different levels. We even, when we get into some of the epistles and we start examining the different churches the apostles were writing to, there are indicators that, yes, some of, of, of these were just one gathering, but for many of them, when he would write to, for example, the churches of Galatia, these were smaller gatherings meeting in houses um, across the place. Would they ever have gotten together in one big gathering? Perhaps. But that was a situation of multiple churches in a region that were in some way regionally associated together or attached to each other. What we read in the letter to the Romans is a bit different. You have one church, but it's evident that there are multiple households that have gatherings of that church within their houses. Thus, you will have a letter to one church, but the, the phrase will be used, you'll remember this from the greetings portions at the end of the letters, greet this person and this person and the church in their house. Those who are a part of the church at Rome who are gathering within um, um, uh, the, the, the household of this particular family for what? I would say fellowship, hospitality, growth, discipleship, every member ministry. That, of course, was in a city that did not have the um, uh, vastness of the Temple Mount in which to gather in great groups, all of the different halls and corridors of that in which they could gather. But certainly the church at Jerusalem has, we see this model of a, a big venue of some sort, certainly big compared to ours, um, a vast space in which they would gather and they would worship. Yes, they would proclaim Christ in the Jewish temple. Yes, they would worship Him there together in Mass. Certainly that's what happened on the day of Pentecost beforehand when, when Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And they continued that rhythm of gathering together in Mass for corporate worship in the temple. But we see the rhythm of their, their week was characterized not only by all of them gathering at once, all thousands of them in one place at one time, but also from house to house. And you, there's no house in Jerusalem that could host the whole church. It's not like you have all two to 3,000 people sort of rocking up to, uh, to Peter's place. Rather, you have homes in which people are gathered to pray. Homes in which people are gathered to study the Word of God. We see it later in the book of Acts, for example, when uh, they're arrested at different times. And we'll read about a house that had gathered members of the church for prayer. Potentially, there were other houses that were doing that that exact same night. But what we do know is that there is a house and there's a lot of believers that have come together in that place and they know they can go there and there's going to be prayer for those people who are being persecuted. Well, the question for us then is, what are, what are we doing? What is the rhythm of our church life? Uh, I, I hope that we have established a general track record and rhythm of gathering and going. That we're not just gathering, but we're also going. That we're not just going, but we're also gathering. 
I hope that it looks something, although at a much smaller scale, like what we read at the end of Acts chapter 2. If, if there, is, there are a few passages that I know I keep going back to when it comes to preaching and, and teaching, this is one of them. If it seems familiar, it's because it is. If it seems repetitive, it's because we learn by repetition. And it is so important that we as a church understand how to function healthily and fruitfully as a local congregation of Christ followers. At the conclusion of this eventful chapter, in this glimpse of the life of the newly established Jerusalem church, we see a communally and generously devoted fellowshipping church that is totally committed to Jesus Christ. And whatever the the various elements within their congregation and the struggles they have and the, the, uh, there's, there's certainly some, uh, some barriers that we see linguistically within this chapter. There are, are some issues that we see um, infrastructurally later in Acts chapter 6 where you have as a result of some infrastructural official problems there, there, there are, are people who are being neglected and the church um, leaders respond to that and, 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 and everything is, is developing nicely but all of that is in a context of a church that has a gathering, a, a big gathering and has lots of little gatherings. They're gathering and they're going. And even as they're going they are gathering. And as they're gathering, they're going. You see, it's that, it's that constant, it's just all part of it. We see what they were devoted to. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. A few years ago, I think it was 2019, I did a whole series on that. We had a sermon on the apostles' teaching. We had one on fellowship. We had two on breaking of bread, and prayers. So we see not only what they were devoted to, but we see how they were devoted and, 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 and the mentality with which they were devoted. They were devoted with unity. Do you see it in the text? All who believed were together. Verse 44. All who believed were together. That doesn't mean that they were always in the same place at the same time. Because he does say they were in the temple and from house to house. But they were together. They had unity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There were many things that might have divided them. There were many things that might legitimately at a societal level and at a personal level might have proven to be barriers. But in Jesus Christ... Those things need not divide. They may distinguish. There may be distinctions. In a, um, an urban local church, there will be any number of things that will distinguish us from person to person. But those distinctives need not divide us. We must be together. And so as we continue to pursue a rhythm of gathering and going, as we gather for the core things like Lord's Day worship, prayer meeting, and as we go, whether that be evangelistically or for personal discipleship in small groups, we must be together, devoted with unity. But not only were they devoted with unity, we see that they were devoted with impact. 
So as they're gathering and going, there is a very real tangible result. It says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In that context, we have a number of people who were severely impoverished. You also must bear in mind that based on what we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, there were people from all over the Roman Empire, albeit with Jewish background, who had come to Jerusalem simply for the festivals. Their purpose and intent would have, it would seem, been to go back. But they've not done so. Because they've become followers of Jesus Christ, and they're desiring to grow and to serve and to be committed to the life of a local church. They're all gathered in one place and they're not going back. They find themselves far from home, not unlike the vast majority of people here in our congregation at some level, either as first or second generation immigrants. Far from our homes or the homes of our fathers or of our grandfathers. And we, find, we, 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 we perhaps at various levels find it, some more than others perhaps, difficult to adapt and adjust. There are members of our congregation who are in crisis situations directly linked to their immigration. And, and that's, that it's impossible for a tiny handful of people, especially those tasked with the, the, the discipleship of the church and the pastoral care of the church, to take on board all of that. We must all be ministering together and serving one another. And that's what we see happening in this particular passage. There are people who are in need, so the church sells its possessions and belongings and distributes to all as they have need. We've had brothers and sisters with immigration problems, and it has been an encouragement to see many of you rising to help them and serve them in ways seen and unseen Ways known to everyone and many of you ways unknown to most. But God sees and God knows. And it has an impact. You might not feel it has an impact. And it can be difficult because we all find ourselves perhaps feeling as one might speculate Jesus felt when He healed people and they just ran off. And uh, (laughs) did it, where's my thanks? But are we doing it for the thanks or are we doing it to do right? to please God, to worship Him, and to care for someone in need. One day, they'll remember, maybe. But it's not about that. They have a need. We rise to meet it. God is glorified. That's it. We are worshiping God. It should be desired that they respond to people's generosity by worshiping God. But the point is, you are worshiping God and you are blessing people. You are having an impact. Bigger scale ministries like the food bank have blessed multitudes. I mean, when, when you look at, at the number of mouths that have been fed, I, it, it gets impossible to do the calculations, but there have been seasons where I have, in all honesty, told people that we were likely feeding up to 100 mouths a week. Easily. That's very substantial. And sometimes we don't fully realize the, you know, because it seems like such a small thing, and it seems in some ways, in the more hectic moments, chaotic, maybe, 
Sometimes disorganized. Maybe there's just a few of us and there's so little that we feel that we can do. But that's not what they see. They see impact. People who are blessed. People who are helped. And there's fruit of that. Yes, um, you say, well, what, what fruit of that? Well, um, I was in a long meeting yesterday with the leader of the Albanian Fellowship who says that um, a Muslim lady who met us through the food bank and has um, um, received uh, help from us and had for quite some time and we couldn't take it forward because of the very real language barrier was connected with them and all of that relational, foundational groundwork had been laid so that when she was able to meet Christians who spoke her language, she was overwhelmed and has now consistently on a weekly basis attended not only their, other, their charitable endeavors, i.e. like language lessons and things, but is in regular consistent attendance at their church gatherings. And is hearing the Gospel. And is being engaged with the Gospel. That's impact. And certainly we see that already in the life of our church, whether that be here or further afield. You know, the, the month of prayer and giving that we just finished um, uh, may be lost on some, but it certainly should not be on any of us in this congregation. Not as a matter of pride in ourselves, but a matter of boasting in Christ that if we were to, to just at a human level, look at the 30... Churches profiled, let's say 29 other than our church profiled, most of them would not exist at some level. They would not have been planted to begin with. They would not have been revitalized. If they exist, they wouldn't have had any connection with us. There would have been some other relationship. That's very significant for a small church in the back roads of North London. That is all of God and of His grace. And I have every confidence, as Esther did when she um, um, was weighing up how she should respond to the persecution of her people, that help would have arisen from another source if we did not take that on. But in the providence of God, He chose to use us in our weakness to pursue that and to accomplish that. Impact. But you know, we cannot and must not become complacent. We must not in some sort of self-righteous pride settle for what has happened in the past because with every passing year, I look at those testimonies in the past two years I've written them and it occurs to me how long ago some of that was. Ten years? Twelve years? And we've seen God bring uh, fruit out of those congregations and their perseverance. But we must continue to press on and see the work of the Gospel continue to advance in this massive city filled with millions of people who do not know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One of the ways that I believe that we can and should do this is at a hyper-local level, gathering as Christians in community for prayer, for Bible study, for expressions of hospitality, all of those good things at a small group level. And in that context, as we nurture one another in those hyper-local small groups, 
that we also let that facilitate hyper-local witness. That is to say, this is Grace Baptist Church Woodgreen, and our congregation draws in people from a wider catchment area than Woodgreen proper. But our, our missional and evangelistic focus has always been Woodgreen, these roads. But why can't it be your street? Why can't it be your block? Why can't it be your estate? Your housing development? Your area? God has placed you in your house for a reason. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has given you the neighbors that you have for a reason? Those of you who live in Wood Green, along with me and others who live in Wood Green, will meet and will gather for Bible study. But one thing we can be certain is the rhythm of gathering and going must be maintained. And so we, we, we gather, but we gather with that purpose of facilitating going. And one of the things that I desire to come out of these small groups is for us to talk in those small groups about how we, as a group, Yes, under the oversight of the elders and attached to the accountability of the local church, but how we can, as representatives of Grace Baptist Church, plan evangelism and mission in our immediate local area. So to organize a group of people in Palmer's Green, or in Tottenham, or in um, Edmonton, or in Enfield, or yes, certainly Wood Green, to to go knocking on doors. Hi, we're from Grace Baptist Church in Woodgrain. We're, we're your neighbors though. We live, we live here and um, we, we're seeking to engage our community with the good news of Jesus Christ. Or, or uh, you know, asking them a question. We're asking people, what, what is grace? What is, how, how would you define grace? And then you give them that. So we're, uh, we're, we're talking about... Um, the um, uh, gospel. What does gospel mean? Or who is Jesus? You can do that. Or you can even start just at a very powerful and radically um, uh, countercultural uh, entry level that I've seen in recent weeks break people in tears. We just want to care for people in our community. And one of the ways that we as Christians do that is by praying for them. If there's one thing that we can pray for you, what might that be? I've heard people say, no one has ever asked me that in my life. I was talking with your sons, Diana, and Daniel was talking about how he had told some friends he was praying for them and they were shocked. What? They're not Christians, but they, he prays for them? When I was in Krakow a, a, a couple of weeks ago, there was a... Um, a, a Waitress at the restaurant, I think I talked about this probably last week, but she um, um, was very friendly, very kind, very, very sort of conversational. And um, when we talked, the more I sensed that not all was right in her life, that if she had family, she had no relationship with her family, and it was very probable that she didn't even have family. Certainly not at a functional level, but we asked if there's one thing we can pray for you, what is that? And out of nowhere, she just started crying. That I would be happy 
And this was someone who up until that point seemed happy, seemed jolly, but they had put on a mask and they were trying very hard. And so we were able to share with that, that woman good news, not of temporal happiness, but of eternal joy, which is found in Jesus Christ. You have the opportunity to do that to your neighbors, you know. You could, you, and one of the things about gathering with, with believers from the local church that you already know, but who live down the road from you or just around the corner or something, it facilitates that impact, that mission at some level. I've thrown it out to the leaders to think about that, but I'm now throwing it out to you to think about that and support that and to plan and to strategize. How can you work together, even in your small groups, for impact? Because it is at the small group level that people share their needs often. And it's at the small group level that certain needs come to the surface, be those emotional or um, material or spiritual. They were devoted with impact. Selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they were devoted with worship. They did this, we're told, with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Our um, small groups will not succeed if they do not have at their heart worship. And no, I do not mean singing. Although I've told the leaders that if they wish to incorporate singing into their gatherings, I think that would be lovely, and they're certainly welcome to do so. Rather, worship is a matter of the heart, isn't it? Glad and generous hearts was the disposition with which they made these sacrifices. The disposition with which they hosted people in their homes, not only with which they gathered in the temple complex, but when they would go from house to house, they were sharing meals together. They were, they were uh, speaking together. They were encouraging one another. Some of these interactions, we must understand at an interpersonal level, um, once you get b beyond the surface of, hi, how are you? And, oh, isn't it a glorious day? And um, um, oh, it, was a bit, it was a bit cold this week for my liking. And, you know, oh, did you, did, you know, have, you, have, you, have you read this book? Oh, isn't it great? Oh, wasn't that film amazing? And all of the different things that you know, people chatter about. When you get down to the nitty-gritty of life, there are things that are difficult and complex and draining. Glad and generous hearts, brothers and sisters. They did this with glad and generous hearts, praising God that they had the opportunity to reflect the goodness of God's grace in Jesus Christ to one another in the context of family. And that's what I would urge you to approach these small groups with. Glad and generous hearts. Um, it, I've said this multiple times and I must reiterate it. Do not presume upon the gladness and the generosity of your hosts. Do not presume upon the gladness and the generosity of your leader. Their gladness and generosity is depicted simply in them opening the doors to members of the church. Their gladness and generosity is depicted simply in them teaching. But, but um, to, to, to assume that they're going to be glad and generous in every way and you're going to be sad and stingy, that's not fair, is it? 
It's like they, they're carrying the weight of gladness and generosity, and you come like they're Jesus or something. You know, um, um, I, I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed, or whatever that is that we were were singing um, a while back. And 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 you know, you expect the smoke. That's not their role. Their role is to in gladness and generosity teach. So I would encourage those who are going to be doing that. Be glad and generous with your hospitality. Be glad and generous in your teaching. But those who are attending the groups, can I encourage you to be glad and generous in your receiving of the Word, to be glad and generous in offering to bring food, glad and generous in um, offering to help tidy up afterwards. You know, it, it actually does make it difficult for the leaders and the hosts to be glad and generous in perpetuity if every time they're glad and generous, they, they feel they've been pouring out and then, you know, the high, the high end, trust me, the high end's very quick once the door closes and the last goodbye is said. The door closes, they turn around, and the place is a tip. Why? Because of you. <laughs> You've been having fun. That's great. You've been glad and generous and enjoying their gladness and generosity. But you see, we're, it's supposed to be so, uh, reciprocal. It's something that we're supposed to be sharing, not just consuming. This can be a very enjoyable, profitable season of the life of our church. But it also could be the opposite. So <laughs> I'm, encur I'm encouraging you to model your disposition on Acts chapter 2 principles with glad and generous hearts. Praise God and do it together. Encourage one another in the Lord. So yes, they were devoted with unity. They were devoted with impact. They were devoted with worship. And they were devoted with witness. They were in the temple. They were from house to house. And what was the result of all of this? Well, it says, it says that they had favor with all the people. That's, that's an amazing thing. I mean, you know, all the people, not just the people who believed in Jesus. They didn't have a bad word to say about them. So it would be really unfortunate if you have your small group gatherings and you're causing such, such noise that the next door neighbors are like, you know, because you've crossed some lines. You, you know what I'm saying? Like if, or you leave, and never mind leaving the people's house inside a mess, you've left the hallway of the flat a mess. Or, I don't expect any of that, frankly. But some things have to be said because you never know. How you conduct yourself going into the meeting and how you conduct yourself going out of the meeting has relevance for how people perceive what's going on in there. Indeed, how you conduct yourself within the meeting. Because these walls are thin. And people, people are listening sometimes. Spring and summer's approaching. Windows are open. People are walking by. And I'm not saying you should be doing what you're doing because, oh, they might hear. The neighbors might hear. Or all that, those people, they might see. You should be naturally comporting yourself in a Christ-like way. You should be naturally, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
living in the ascension power of the risen King, people that have favor. You know, it's interesting, the past couple of weeks, um, I've seen people who in the past would just walk straight by, and it's very interesting to see neighbors that um, some have actually walked up to the window, and I've never seen that person do that before. I know these people. I've known them for years. I've established good rapport with them, a good relationship with them. We've become friends at some level. We can't have fellowship because they're not following Jesus, but we've become friends. And it's interesting to see them walk up to the windows or if those barriers, sometimes even to the second layer and just to look in and see what's happening. Don't think that, that that's insignificant. That what people see and hear just in passing doesn't leave a mark. We hope it's a good one. The church there was praising God and they had favor with all the people. And in that context, we're told in verse 43, if you were to rewind, all came upon every soul. What we want out of these small groups and out of, out of our large groups is people to be amazed by God. When, when I um, um, uh, am preaching on a, uh, anytime, Sunday morning or evening, I'm seeing people who are saved by God's grace and I'm standing before you as one who stands only in the merits of God's grace. He's only here empowered by God's grace. And so I'm amazed by God. That makes me quite excited. Sometimes, um, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, it makes me excited as far as the volume I speak at or the speed I speak at. Sometimes... It moves me to tears. This morning, I didn't know quite how to process it when I, 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 I hadn't noticed until I actually sat down and then walked over here and people were all standing and I couldn't see the aisle because people were standing in the aisle and people were there. And, you know, I, I used to preach about things like, for example, punctuality. You know, it's always one of those little things I used to talk about. Because one of these days you're going to get to church and there's not going to be a seat for you. And you know, I always had hope that that would be the reality, but sometimes you say stuff like that just hoping that, okay, you know, that's a distant dream. And then it's here. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you're amazed by God, but I am. I'm amazed by by what God is doing. I'm amazed by what God has done. I'm amazed by what God will do. And so it's important that we, as we approach this next season, I know there's uncertainty. I know there's nervousness. I know there's anxiety. I know there may be all sorts of things that people are thinking or feeling, but can we approach it even just at this trial level with unity? For impact, with worship, with witness, as people who are amazed by God. Why were they devoted? The reason they were devoted was exactly that point I just made. They were devoted because all had come upon their soul. They were devoted because they were amazed by God. And so because we're amazed by God... Let's lean into this new season of church life. Let's enjoy it for as long as it lasts. I've been very, I hope, upfront that this is um, uh, quite possibly something we'll continue to do. But then again, 
It may not be. It may be something we continue in some places and not in others. But we seek the Lord. And we do all of this with glad and generous hearts because all has come upon our soul. I hope that encourages you. I hope that helps you. Whether it's, it's Sunday services, morning and evening. I'm not talking about you who are in the room tonight, but those watching or those not watching who will watch later in the week. That's about all in our soul. Are we amazed by God? Prayer meeting. Do you participate in that? That's about being amazed by God. So too is Bible study. Gathering and going. All of this is for His glory. We must have these things to sustain us and strengthen us in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on a, a different season in the life of our church, we pray that You would strengthen and sustain us. Give us wisdom, guidance, and grace. We pray for those who will be um, leading the, uh, the groups. We pray that um, You would please, Lord God, um, 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 uh, stir up within them um, uh, zeal for You and Your Word and help them to faithfully communicate it for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.